Well, I want to begin by asking, are there any Reliant K fans in here? <laughs> really, Daniel? Andrew Peterson, Reliant K. Match made. All right, well, you know, I, I used to think Reliant K uh, just for girls. You know, they're like a, a, a Christian girl band. But over the years, I've, I've grown to like them more and appreciate their artistry and their lyrics. And uh, I want to begin by quoting one of my favorite lyrics. I think it's lesser known, um, but it's, it's actually very uh, helpful, I think. One of their songs says this, When a nightmare finally does unfold, perspective is a lovely hand to hold. I love that lyric because... It calls us in our suffering, it calls us in our fears, it calls us in, in the moment when our, our, the worst thing that we ever thought could happen happens, it calls us to the sobering and hope-bringing power of perspective. When a nightmare finally does unfold, perspective is a lovely hand to hold. You know, the thing is, suffering often causes us to lose perspective. In times of fear, in times of loss, in times of confusion, difficulty, you know, what we tend to do is we get tunnel vision of our lives and of our world. Suffering does that to us. It's like blinders come on and all we can see is the suffering. All we can see is ourselves and the suffering. And one of the gifts of God to us in His Word is that His Word corrects this tendency. His Word removes the blinders. It expands our vision His word shines light in our lives that gives us good, proper, right perspective in our sufferings. And I pray that's what will happen for us this morning. You can open your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk. We're continuing our series through this book that we are calling How Long. I just want to review for a moment where we've been. This book is about a prophet in Judah named Habakkuk who was wrestling with the tension of his understanding of God, conflicting with his experience of God. Who who God says he is was not lining up with what was happening in his life. And he's wrestling through this, and the whole book shows us this dialogue between Habakkuk and the Lord, this, this process of Habakkuk working through this tension before the Lord, bringing that tension straight to God and crying out the opening words of the book, O Lord, how long? Habakkuk crying out for God to intervene, crying out for God to rescue him. They're living under a wicked king in Judah named Jehoiakim, and they're calling out to God, do something, save us from these unjust rulers. The Lord responds to this cry, as we saw, by making known to Habakkuk the way that he plans to intervene. And here's what the Lord says to Habakkuk. He is going to intervene. He's going to do something. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to use the wicked and violent Babylonians as an instrument of his judgment on Judah. That's the Lord's answer to Habakkuk and his suffering. I'm going to send the Babylonians to judge Judah. And this does not comfort Habakkuk at all. This does not sound like salvation at all. This is wickedness being replaced with even more wickedness. Injustice being replaced with more injustice. This is not salvation. And again, it leaves Habakkuk with this conflict. How can a holy God judge evil with more evil? When, when will God do what is right, what is just? And so Habakkuk asked the Lord at this point, to answer his complaint. And and, and he says, I'm going to wait here until you respond. And the Lord does respond with a vision. We saw this last week in chapter 2. The vision 
that the Lord gives is brief, but, but what we saw is that it's loaded with things, not just for Habakkuk, but for all people of all time in this fallen world. The vision's brief. Here's what it says. Behold the proud before me, but the righteous will live by faith. It's the vision that the Lord gives to Habakkuk in this tension, in this conflict, in, in this darkness that he's in. The Lord calls Habakkuk and us to trust in him alone for righteousness and for salvation. The Lord promises life to all who live by faith in him. The Lord tells Habakkuk that the proud are not upright before me, but those who put their faith in me are, and they will live. Well, this morning's passage is Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 5 through 20. Habakkuk 2, 5 through 20. And what it is, is an expansion of that vision. It's the Lord, the Lord continuing from that central vision to, to then give Habakkuk uh, what he needs to be able to apply that vision to his life. And here's how what we're going to read today relates to the vision of last week. The vision called us to live by faith. Today we're going to see that if we are going to live by faith, then we must keep things in perspective. Here's the main idea this morning. When our understanding of God conflicts with our experience of God, we must keep a proper perspective. You can add that to the list of what we've seen in this book. We've seen that we must pray like Habakkuk prayed, with honesty, with, with faith, with perseverance. We must wait like Habakkuk waited in the word of God before the cross. We must, we must put our faith in Jesus Christ and in his proper perspective. This is what we must do when we experience that tension between who God says he is and what we're experiencing in our lives. We must keep a proper perspective. Let's read this whole passage, Habakkuk 2, verses 5 through 10. Habakkuk 2, verses 5 through 20. He's a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork will respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a son of the Lord of hosts, that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise. 
Can this teach? With gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This passage gives us three realities that we must keep in perspective in this life of faith. Three realities to keep in perspective. First, a perspective of the present. We need to have a right perspective of the present. And we see this in verse 5. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who's never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. What is the perspective that this verse gives us? That the present belongs to the proud. The present belongs to the proud. That's the perspective of the present that God is calling us to have. This verse describes the proud, the, up, the, the ones whose souls are puffed up. It tells us a few things about them. First, they're deceived. The proud are deceived. Look at verse 5 again. Wine is a traitor. Here's what that verse is telling us. It, it, you know, these, the Babylonian Empire are, are conquering nations. And, and as they do, uh, whether it's literal or metaphorical is not clear, but, but they are getting drunk on their power. They're getting drunk in their success. And yet this wine will betray them because it keeps them from seeing what's going to come. They, they live deceived lives. The proud live lives of self-deception. Second, they're dissatisfied. An arrogant man who's never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol like death. He has never enough. Dissatisfied. There's not going to be a point where they say, the Babylonians aren't going to say, I've conquered enough lands. We're good. Let's just stop there. No, they're never going to feel like they have enough. They're never going to feel like they have rest. What Augustine said is true of the proud. Our hearts are restless without God until they find their in Him. We're dissatisfied. The proud are never going to be satisfied with what they have gained for themselves in life. So they're deceived, they're dissatisfied, and yet they're determined they're determined to continue in their way. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Even though they're dissatisfied, because they're deceived, they don't stop. They keep going. They keep hoping for a different result. They keep on gathering, thinking that they'll be satisfied even though they won't be. And their response to that dissatisfaction is they continue to gather. They continue to pursue they, can, they continue to live this way. This is, this is what the Babylonians did, and this is what all the proud do in this world. They're deceived about what's actually happening. They're dissatisfied. They're restless, but that dissatisfaction drives them to do more of the same. And what it does is it drives them to, to they determine to gather more for themselves at any cost to anybody else. So why does the Lord say this to Habakkuk? What does this have to do with what he just said, that, that, that the righteous will live by faith, that the proud are not upright before him? He's just given him this promise that, that all who humble themselves uh, and believe in him will find life. So why then does he then move back to his focus on the ways of the proud? I think it's this, it's to help Habakkuk and to help us. Habakkuk already knew that we will live our lives with a constant tension. The proud are not upright before him. The righteous will live by faith. 
and yet the proud will prosper. That's the tension. The tension is that we know God is not pleased with the proud, and yet the proud will prosper. The tension is that we know God is the Savior of his people, yet his people will suffer. This whole series we've been discussing the problem of of our understanding of God, conflicting with our experience of God, and this verse is, is God's way of saying that conflict is not going away in this life. That conflict's not going to resolve itself. You must live in the tension. You must live understanding that the present belongs to the proud. You know, an application of this for us this morning is that we need to adjust our expectations of the present. We need to adjust our expectations of the present. I don't know if you've heard, but we have an election coming up next month. If you haven't heard, get on Facebook and they will make sure you know and make sure you vote. Well, I cannot predict today which candidate is going to win, but I can tell you the answer to a question that a lot of us are asking. What's going to happen to our country? I can tell you right now what's going to happen to our country. The proud will prosper. That is what is going to happen to our country. The the proud will prosper. They will continue to be deceived. They will continue to be dissatisfied. And they will continue in their determination to gather more and more for themselves at any cost. This is life in a fallen world. God is telling us here, this is life in the present. Now, this is not to say that God never intervenes. God has, and he does, and he may in the future bring revival to a nation or establish righteousness where there was once wickedness. But the thing is, all these things are only for a time. When, when, he, when he does intervene in these ways, it, it, it doesn't last. The Great Awakening was a wonderful work of God, but where is it now? The abolition of slavery was a wonderful thing in our country of righteousness prevailing over wickedness. And, and yet, slavery in our world is, is more prevalent than ever. We live at the end of the ages. And by and large, our days will be marked by the prosperity of the proud and the suffering of the saints. The, the fact that we are unfamiliar with that is more the exception than anything else. We need to adjust our expectations of the present. This perspective is so important because it will keep us from being surprised when suffering comes. Like like Peter says, don't don't be surprised when when the trial comes as as if something strange were happening to you. He says, no, it's it's not strange. It's to be expected. This perspective will keep us triumphs. Now, I say this as one who's felt this. I mean, there are times when I'm looking at what's happening in our country, looking at the election, and I feel a sense of despair. I feel moments of, 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 of really fearing what's going to come. But I'm not keeping the perspective I need to keep in those moments. This perspective will keep us from hopelessness when the proud prosper. This is how God has said it will be, and living by faith requires us to keep this perspective of the present. You know, I'll just over and over this week have thought of Psalm 73, the Psalm of Asaph, and I just want to touch for a second on what this psalm is about. Asaph is a, and he has kept himself pure, but he looks out at the prosperity, and he's a moment where he says, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. What is it getting me? 
the, the, the proud, and he goes on and on, the, the, proud, the proud are enjoying all the luxuries of this world. The proud are, are unjustly persecuting your people. The proud have it all. And, and here I am trying to live purely for what? What is it getting me? That, that, that's his mentality. And he's forgetting this reality that the present belongs to the proud. But you know what reminds him of that reality is he says, then I went into your holy temple and I discerned their end. And I discerned their end. And that takes us to the next part of this text, perspective of the future. We don't just need perspective of the present. We also need a perspective of the future if we're going to live by faith. This perspective comes to us as the bulk of our text today, verses 6 through 19. And here's the perspective that God gives us of the future. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. The perspective of the present is that the, proud, the present belongs to the proud. But the perspective of the future is judgment is coming. This text gives five declarations of woe. Five pronouncements of judgment on the wicked, on the proud. It specifically applies to the Babylonian Empire and the way that they were living and 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 domineering other peoples, but, but it really applies to all the proud. We're just going to walk through these pronouncements of woe briefly this morning. First, in verses 6 through 8, we see woe to the one who steals from others. Let's read it again. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Arise, and those awake who will make you tremble, then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. And so this is a pronouncement of judgment on those who steal from others, who heap up what's not their own, who load them with pledges from others, who, who load themselves with, with those who are in their debt and, and unjustly take what is not their own and, and make it their spoil. And, and here's what God says to them, because you've done this, you will be spoiled for them. You will be plundered. You who have plundered, you will be plundered one day. What you have done will be returned to you. There will be a fitting judgment for those who steal from others. Second, woe to the one who seeks unjust security. Now let's look at the text to see what we mean by that. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. It's in verse 9. So, so stealing from others, but what are you using it for? You're, you're using it to build up your house in a high and safe place that no one can touch. The, the goal of the stealing is security. It's safety. And he says, woe to those who do that, who, who use what they steal from others to, to make themselves safe from harm. And, and then look what he says will happen. You've devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You've forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork will respond. That safe place they're in, that safe house they've built up, the walls are going to cry out to the woodwork inside of them, and it's going to crash down on them one day. They think they're safe, and they're not. That safe place will be their downfall. They forfeited their life. The third woe is woe to the one who builds through violence. See this in verses 12 and 13. Woe to him who built on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people themselves for nothing? This is what the Babylonians did. They, they built their empire 
by destroying other people. They built their empire through violence. They built their cities through sin and iniquity and wickedness. And, and, and they're giving themselves to building this great domain, this great empire. And what the Lord says in verse 12 is that it's all for nothing. All the effort you're putting into building this great kingdom, this great empire, it's all going to be for nothing. It's all going to come to nothing. Next, woe to the one who puts others to shame. This starts in verse 15. We'll come back to 14. Verses 15 through 17. Woe to the one who puts others to shame. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. What's going on here is this is, this is an uh, act of shaming your enemy. You, you, you make them drunk, and then, and then while, while they don't have the capacity to even think right, you strip them of their clothes in order to shame them in their nakedness. This was common practice in the Babylonians to just shame those they conquered this way, to debase them this way. And here's the judgment. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. What he says is that the Lord will show your nakedness. The, the, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. And so this, this cup, they're, they're making the nations drunk and they're exposing their nakedness and shaming them, but the Lord is going to bring His cup to them, the cup of His wrath, and He's going to make them drink the cup of His wrath. And he's going to expose that they never belong to Him, expose their uncircumcision, that they are not His, that they, they have no place before Him, and they will be utterly ashamed on that day. Verse 17 speaks again to those who have done this, and it says that they've done this through violence and, 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 and destruction of the earth, and he says that all of this will come back upon you. The violence that you've done will overwhelm you. And again, we see exactly what they have done will come back to them. And then finally, woe to the one who trusts in idols, verses 19 and 20, verses 18 and 19, rather. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Silver, and there's no breath at all in it. So the Babylonians were idolaters. They made statues who were to represent their gods, and they would pray to these statues and call out to these statues for guidance and for help and for instruction. And the Lord says, here's the judgment of idolatry. Your idols will utterly fail you. They will fail you. The judgment is in the idolatry itself. They can't guide. They can't wake up. There's no breath in them. You are the maker of your God, is what he's saying. You've made your God. What kind of God is that? It will utterly fail you. That is the judgment on idolaters. I just want you to notice in all of these judgments that they are perfectly fitting for what has been done. Every one of them is retributive in nature. You've done this, and this will therefore be done to you. It is a picture of perfect justice that is coming in the future. Writer of these five woes is a ray of light. Verse 14, at the very center of these five pronouncements is this picture of what the world will be like on the other side of judgment. 
when judgment is complete, here teen, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Picture that day this morning, church. The, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When the Lord's future work of judgment is complete, it's going to result in the future that Habakkuk has been praying for, that we all long for, a new creation that is fully inhabited by those who know and love the glory of God. This knowledge of God is going to be like the waters covering the sea. So just think about the ocean, and think about the water in the ocean, and how it fills up every nook and cranny of the ocean floor. It goes from the, from the shore all the way to the deepest center. Wherever the water goes, it fills up the sea floor below it. This is a picture of how comprehensive and complete the knowledge of the glory of God will be. The whole world, every person in all of creation, will find their complete joy in the glory of God. That is the future that God holds out to us after these judgments. How will these things happen? How will these things occur? Well, this verse, verse 14, is actually a quotation from Isaiah 11.9. Habakkuk is looking back at previous scripture. He's looking back at the prophet Isaiah here. And so I want to look back to Isaiah together. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. We are answering the question, how will this day happen? How will this day come? Isaiah 11, starting in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins." The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the choir, and his resting place shall be glorious. How will that day come? It will come through the stump of Jesse, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch that will bear fruit. A seed will come, and he will have the Spirit of the Lord on him, and he will establish righteousness, and he will judge wickedness, and he will establish peace on the earth, peace in all of creation. And at the very center, again, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. His resting place shall be glorious. This is a promise of the Messiah, the Son of David. In the New Testament, we discover that this promised Messiah is Jesus. This promised Messiah is is the one who was born of Mary. 
and who showed himself to be the Messiah. But you know what? His messianic work, it defied expectations. Because of prophecies like these, the Israelites thought this is the Messiah, which means he's going to judge our enemies and he's going to establish his kingdom, right? But that's not what he did. Instead, Jesus said the Son of Man must be delivered over to the wicked and be killed and on the third day be raised. So this promised Messiah comes to judge the wicked. This Messiah is supposed to establish his kingdom of peace and glory. And he says, I need to be killed. Why? Why would this promised Messiah need to be killed? The answer is so that those who deserve his judgment could be part of that new creation. You know, one of the pictures of judgment that we just saw in Habakkuk is the picture of the wicked drinking the cup of God's wrath. But when Jesus came, he didn't give the cup to the wicked. He didn't give it to them. He didn't say, drink the cup of my... He took the cup. He drank it down in his own death for us. He bore the judgment that we just talked about in his own body so that all who believe in him can be forgiven of their sins and suited in that glorious new creation. This is what Jesus did when he came. And now, Hebrews 9, 27-28 say this to us. This is, this is where things now stand today. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We would never have been part of this new creation if he did not come first to bear our sin. But because he has, now we wait for him to come and to judge the world and to establish his kingdom and to fill the world with the knowledge of the glory of God. This is the future that God gives us perspective of. And our application on this point is set your hope here in the future. Set your hope in the future why do we have that despair about things like elections in our country? It's because our hope is in our country. It's our, our hope is in the present. No, adjust your expectations of the present and set your hope on that day when Christ returns. You know, we live in a culture that is clamoring for justice. I mean, you agree with that, right? You see the news, you see what's happening. Our, our country is, 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 is just crying out for justice. And in our culture about the issues facing us and, and what kind of justice is needed, we should recognize that the innate desire for justice is good. Desire for justice is right. That's a God-given desire that glorifies him who hates evil. But here's the thing. Even the best justice system in this world, in many cases, can only produce approximate justice. Even the best justice systems cannot always produce true, full justice. Full and complete justice in this world is not possible. But did you notice in the pronouncements of judgment in Habakkuk, each justice fit what was done. Full and complete justice is not possible now, but it will come one day. And it's not wrong to desire this justice, this perfect, and, and, and it is a sense in which we long for that day. We long for the day when justice will be established in the world. Because God is righteous, and we love his righteousness. But here's the thing. This is first and foremost bad news for us, left to ourselves. We long for justice, but then we realize that we can locate ourselves, that we must locate ourselves on the list of the wicked. Every one of us can find ourselves in Habakkuk 2. We can all find ourselves on that list somewhere. If, if not in the first four woes, we can all... And we all must realize that we are all idolaters. We have all made our own gods to worship 
and judgment is coming. And that is not fundamentally good news. And, and so we're in, we have this, this tension. We desire justice, but we also desire mercy. And this is why we rejoice in what we just saw, that Jesus bore the judgment for us. So this morning, in terms of setting your hope on the future as an application, the first thing that you need to do is, is make sure you are trusting in what he's done for you. You cannot have hope in the future if you are not in Christ. Trust in him. Trust in his death on the cross. Trust that he drank the cup for you so that you'll never have to drink it for yourself. You are guilty before the Lord. You will be judged. Judgment is coming, but you can be saved from that judgment in Christ. And then, church, once Christ's work of judgment is complete, then we who have trusted him, but we're going to be part of that new creation. We are going to live on the earth on the day. We will be part of the people who, who are living on the earth when it is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Just, just imagine that creation. Imagine what it's going to be like to be surrounded by constant joy and constant worship forever. Set your hope on that day. Living by faith requires us to keep this perspective. And so we've seen this perspective of the present, the proud. And so we don't want to, we don't want to set our hopes here. We want to adjust our expectations here and now. Understand that, that we're going to live in this tension. We're going to live with with, with, with the proud prospering, but, but in the future, we need to keep that perspective as well. Judgment is coming and salvation is coming for those who believe in Christ. But finally, one more perspective this text gives us, perspective of the Lord himself. Verse 20, what is the perspective of the Lord that we need this morning? But the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is in his holy temple. He reigns over all the earth in righteousness. The Lord sees from his holy temple every act, every person, every heart. He is enthroned in holiness, enthroned in righteousness, surrounded by angelic beings worshiping him. This, this theme is throughout the Old Testament, throughout the scriptures. We get verses laughs. The nations are plotting against the Lord and he is enthroned in his temple laughing at their attempts to dethrone him. He is king over the flood. The Lord is king over the flood. What flood are you in in your life? He's king over it. He reigns in his holy temple. The seraphim cry out before him day and night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's in his holy temple in a fallen world as the Lord is in his holy temple. And we can say even more than that today because the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the Lord, which means that the Lord descended from that temple to earth. The Lord experienced the wickedness of men. Think about this passage. The Lord experienced all the wickedness that the Babylonians put on people. They stripped naked. The Lord experienced the, the violence done to his body. The Lord experienced them stealing his clothes. The Lord experienced all of these things in himself. The Lord was crucified for the sins of all who believe in him. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He's at God's right hand. And what, what this means is when we say the Lord is in his holy temple, we're not just picturing that he reigns and that he's sovereign and that he's king. We're also picturing one who has suffered for us. 
He reigns with his scars now. He reigns having suffered the way we suffer. He reigns having borne the sins that we deserve. And the scars are visible in his glorious resurrected body. This is the Lord who reigns in his holy temple. And there's only one appropriate response to this reality. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This the perspective of God himself. Let's think about it just for a moment. What does it mean to keep silence before the Lord? You know, many people today in our world value silence. They teach the value of silence. You get basketball teams who practice meditation together. You know, the reality is we live in a noisy, you know, taking moments to just be quiet. And, and, and the, the promise of these, these times of meditation the world offers is, is, is that we would have peace. We'd have calmness, we'd have focus, mind, be silent. That's, that's what the world tells us. Listen, the passage calls us to silence before the Lord. Be silent before Him. And so the goal of this silence is not to empty our minds, but to fill our minds with the reality that the Lord is God. To fill our minds with thoughts of His attributes, of His character, of His works, of His promises. It's what Psalm 46.10 says, the purpose of being still, what is it? The purpose of being still is to know that he is God. Be still and know that he is God. Church, if I were to ask you when you came into God, you'd probably say, yes, I know that I believe that. When is the last time you were still so that you could know, sense, feel, embrace, recognize over this world? where you've thought on it and you've been moved by it in your heart and you've had a peace that the world could never give you because you were still before him to know that he is God, to know that he is enthroned in his holy temple. And so we, we need to adjust our expectations of the present, yes. We need to set our hope in the future, yes. But, but we also need to fix our eyes on the Lord. We need to fix our eyes on him himself, on, on the one on whom all of this hinges, the one in his holy temple. We need to fix our eyes there. We need to be silent before him. We need to be still before him. We need to give our complete attention to who he is, to what he's done, and to what he will do. And listen, it, it is impossible to live by faith if you do not set aside moments in your life when you come into his presence in silence to behold him. You cannot live this life by faith if you never are still before him to recognize truly who he is. And so before we sing today, I want to give you this opportunity. Um, we'll take a couple of minutes before the music team comes up to lead us just to be silent, to be still and know that he is God. And I want to encourage you, do not let these moments of silence be empty silence. It's not a time to Think about nothing. This is a time to think about the Lord in throne, the Lord of holiness, the Lord of salvation. Be still this morning and know that He is God.